0: So during this, uh, during this Lent season, we are taking uh, different, different people who were engaged in the Easter story and uh, everything that we know as far as like that last week of Christ. And um, we're looking at it from the perspective of the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus. Uh, so last week, Tim talked about the, the gospel according to Peter. And today we're going to talk about the gospel according to Pontius Pilate, uh, which when, when I look at um, the Easter story, and the uh, descriptions of what it is that went on that whole week, I am most intrigued by this man. So when Justin said, like, who is it that you'd like to, uh, to teach on from the Easter story, the gospel according to, like, it was no-brainer. Like, I, I want to teach on Pilate, because I think that, that what it is that we have to learn from, uh, from, this, uh, from this man and his experiences with Christ is, is very, very important. There's a lot of interesting things that happen in the scriptures that are just straight, straight mystical. Like it's, they're, they're just interesting, the way, that they, uh, the way that they line themselves out. And if, if you know anything about the Easter story, you know that, and we're going to get to this point, you know that Pilate, um, he tries to absolve himself of the, uh, the innocence of Christ. And he does that how? That's right. He washes his hands. Look at Deuteronomy 21. So Deuteronomy 21 begins, uh, I mean, and Deuteronomy 21 is just, it's Moses speaking the law of God again, and he's, he's just, he's going through it again. And Deuteronomy 21 begins with what happens um, when somebody has died and there isn't judgment that can be met out. Like what, what happens when there's been a murder and like there has to be justice for this murder, but we don't know what happened or we don't know how to bring justice to the situation. Um, look at what happens. In verse, uh, verse one, we'll start there. If in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying open in the country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. The elders of the city that's nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, that has not pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. This is very important to where we're going in our teaching today, right? Did you hear what was just said? Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst, When you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So this washing of the hands is this Judaic tradition that says that that you know God cares so much about human life that any time that a human life is inappropriately lost, any time that there is murder that happens, it something will pay. That that's that's in the law. There will be something that dies as a result of the fact that a person died. And in this case, if if that doesn't happen, then what that means is blood guilt. In other words, the guilt for that murder will actually exist among the people. But by following this cleansing, which as a symbol is the washing of hands, the washing of hands, that blood guilt can be removed from in the midst of the people. Important, right? In the midst of the people. Interestingly, look at the end of Deuteronomy 21. If you've got headings in your Bible, what do you see there as the last heading? A man, a, a man hanged on a tree is cursed. I just think it's wild. I mean, that's completely mystical. It's completely, I mean, I just think that's so cool. In, in, this, in this dimension, where we're going to watch Pilate wash his hands, according to a Judaic law, that it's very, very doubtful he knew about. Right? He had no idea what he was doing. It's contained in the exact same section as crucifixion, as the one who hangs on a tree is cursed. Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be in John 18 and 19 for the rest of our time. This is that glorious moment when you didn't change your watch. And as, and as a preacher, you just realized, I've got an hour more than I thought I had. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to be here for a while. Um, the the importance, the importance of context can't be overstated, right? Um, I know that not everyone in this room enjoys reading, but the bottom line is, is that God gave us a book. And so on some levels... Um, uh, you know, like, th- this is this is how we engage God's word. And we have the beauty and the wonder of, like, audiobooks these days, you know, and you can listen to the Bible while you drive to work or whatever. Um, but it's really important to remember every time that you engage the text that you're engaging a context that's not your own. You're, you're engaging a place and a way of being that's not familiar to you. And so understanding what's actually going on, like, where it's read and what's happening in that context is very, very important. This is particularly true when you read the Gospels. Taking Jesus and putting him in his, in his historical setting is crucial to understanding what it is that's happening. We tend to think of the Gospels as leading up to the, the effective you know, life of Jesus, leading us to his death and his resurrection. And, and that's what we focus on because we are so concerned with getting out of here You've heard me say this before. Uh, you know, our, so much of our theology of salvation is like this world is full of sin and terror. Like, won't it be great that we get to get out of here someday? And so we, we read the life of Christ with that in mind to where the death and resurrection of Jesus is our ticket. So you need to really understand this. You need to really understand what it is that Jesus did for you so that you can really mean the prayer that you're supposed to pray so that you can really go to heaven when you die. And, 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 and we, we package that. that. That is all like post Reformation contextualization of the story of Jesus. Very unhelpful. Very unhelpful. Jesus did not have this perspective, Jesus did not work in this way. And that's not what was happening in John 18. John 18 provides for us one of the climaxes of not just the history of the Bible, but of the history of all humankind. There's two testaments in the Bible, right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And both of these are represented by a specific political structure that represents the kingdom that's not God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, what is that nation that represents the kingdom that's not God's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness? Babylon's later, but there's a more core one to the Jewish people, Egypt. That's right. Somebody said Egypt. Egypt is that core concept, that core idea that we were in slavery to sin, to Egypt, and that God set us free. And when God set us free, how did he set us free? What happened? The Exodus, but how did the Exodus happen? How was the Exodus empowered? Passover, Passover. When does Jesus, of all the Jewish festivals, which one does Jesus choose he chooses Passover, chooses Passover. He doesn't choose trumpets. He doesn't choose Day of Atonement. Frankly, Day of Atonement is a, sort of like a theologically smarter one, <laughs> except that it doesn't weave the narrative in. It doesn't weave the narrative in. It still applies, don't get me wrong. But, but from a historical timing context, like Jesus chooses Passover on purpose because Passover was the time for the Jewish people to say, this is where we were, we were in slavery, and now we are set free. And we did that because our God empowered a normal person to stand in front of the king of the world pharaoh and to say to that king Your kingdom isn't strong enough to hold god's people. So let god's people go And what happens He does He does and not only does he let god's people go but they take all the riches and the wealth of egypt with them Right? So there's this great confrontation that happens in the Old Testament where God sends a different way of being, right, a weak stutterer, to stand before the greatest king or the greatest empire the world has seen and to challenge him and to say the way you are doing things is not the way that God does things. And God wants to take his people and go to the land that he has delivered them. I just want to upfront say, I'm getting a lot of my theology today from years of study, from a guy named NT Wright. NT Wright's a leading scholar theologian in the world. Um, I read everything he writes. Uh, I would encourage you to as well. Um, although some of his stuff is really dry theology, um, but it's scintillating stuff if you're a nerd like me. Um, so, uh, uh, but his his basic his his basic stuff. Surprised by hope. Surprised by joy. Um, uh, um, how God became king. Like These are some core things that you would really, really do well to study. That being said, uh, I was reading a sermon from his this past week, and he makes this great point that, like, remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? Why should Pharaoh let God's people go? What was, the, what was the reason? So we can go worship God in the desert. That's right. So we can go into the desert and worship God. And Wright says, and I always thought this too, I've always thought of that, it's just like, a nice excuse to get out of Egypt, <laughs> you know. Like we're gonna, I'm gonna lie to Pharaoh and say we're gonna go worship, when really we are gonna run like heck to get to out, to get out of here, <laughs> as fast as we can, back to the nation of uh, of Egypt. And what Wright says, he, he started to rethink that, because what's the first thing that happens after they, after the Exodus, they find themselves where at Mount Sinai, and what does God do? God begins to rewrite the way that they've been living. So it's not let us go out into the worship, go out there to worship. In other words, we like get all our instruments out and have a jam session. It's God reordering their way of being to align with who He is, not who they were in Egypt, not as slaves. They didn't know who they were anymore. They lost every identity that they had, and God brings them out to reorder. Fast forward now to do, to, to the uh, uh, week of um, Passover when Jesus stands before Pilate. What do we have? We have a very parallel story of a people held in bondage. Not Egypt, though, this time. Who was it this time? Rome, right? And the Egyptian empire was extremely powerful. Rome, from a geographical standpoint, even more powerful. Just huge, so vast, so strong, military might, so smart. They didn't just conquer, but they changed culture where they went, and they built things, right? and all roads lead to Rome, and they still walk on Roman roads there. And this is an incredible idea of, of, of this empire that's taken over. And here comes this no-name carpenter from the backside of nowhere, who begins to confront the establishment. He both confronts his own religious establishment as well as the Roman establishment. And as we walk toward this, understanding that context is really important. For example, one of the pieces of context that I think is just so interesting is this. This is a denarius. Right? This is a denarius. A denarius is like a penny. Right? It's just, it's, it would be like the most common coin in Rome. And on the picture of the denarius, on the left here is the one side this is, over here it says Caesar, over here it says Augustus, right? Caesar Augustus is sort of like the pinnacle of the Caesars. I mean, Julius Caesar did some great things, but let's, uh, let's uh, face it, things didn't work out well in the end for him. Um, however, Caesar Augustus, man, the, the Roman Empire at this point was, was just uh, of its most renowned strength. And Caesar Augustus, you know, like we do, he put his face on a coin and his name on a coin. On the backside, this word here, in Latin, says, Son of God. It says, Son of God. Wright makes the point. The centurion stands before the cross and says what? Truly, this was the Son of God, while every coin in his pocket had the name of the Son of God. So when Jesus walks around, have you ever noticed that Jesus is a, like, if you and I walked around talking third person, people would question us. And what does Jesus walk around all the time saying? The son of God this, the son of man that. Like He's not just saying these things. Held in their context, held in the history of what's actually happening. These are profoundly, profoundly challenging statements to the political establishment, the social establishment, the economic establishment. Remember when somebody says, what kind of tribute should we pay to Caesar? Where's your coins? Show me a coin. Whose face is on there? Caesar? Then give it to him. Is his face. Right, render to Caesar those things that are Caesar. This is all held within this context. If Caesar wants to call himself son of God, he can call himself son of God. What's actually real and what's actually true is coming right? And so there can be this puppet thing that's held up front as being able to save us. But in the long run, what Jesus comes is with a rewriting of the system. It's more than just a get out of hell quick card. It's more than fire insurance, It's more than just your own personal salvation for the sake of yourself. God is rewriting writing what it means for us to be the people of God. He is holding himself as king, and he is declaring his son as king. And from that spot, his government reigns. And these prophecies have been coming, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. All right? The, the actual like authority, the government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne and he will rule. These are the prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. They're not extrapolations. They're They're not pipe dreams. This is legit. This is real. Jesus is becoming king. And what we see in Pontius Pilate is that he gets to be the representative of the other side. And what happens is this amazing... Amazing confrontation that leaves Pilate feeling very dirty. You know, there's a few vocations in the world um, that you just have dirty hands, like like you just have you just have dirty hands. Like, I, I mean, I've never been a farmer, but I would imagine farmers' hands get dirty a lot. You know, um, I used to work construction and my hands were dirty a lot. When it came time for lunch, I didn't take time to wash my hands. You just like suck it up and eat. You know, like you just get used to it after a while. However, there is one profession that I can think of where you don't do that, and it's a plumber. Um, I can remember my my granddad. He he built his own house on this uh, three acre plot, and he put a septic tank in, that then ran out to a leach field that that he had dug. And, uh, um, you know, that was a fine thing for the first twenty or thirty years of the existence of the house. But after after you keep using that the way that it's used and keep putting things through there that go through there, uh, there can be buildup, you know, and things can happen. And uh, so there was one day, I was about 15 years old. I think I was younger than I might have been 12 or 13. There was one day when he said to me, um, the septic tank is clogged. Um, we have to fix it. And I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, okay. You know, and so there's this big, like six inch thick cement slab with handles on it. And we got the crowbar out and we sprayed this thing off and the smell, I mean, it was just like, poof, you know, it was this thing. And uh, we had to find the pump. There was a pump in there somewhere. Um, and, and there was a line that was run to it. And it was, uh, it was like some old flexible uh, plastic tubing that he had, that he had rigged up and shoved this thing down in there. And, uh, and he goes, this thing's heavy. He goes, so I'm going to start pawing. And then as that comes up, you just grab the next spot, and you pull, and then I'll pull, and we'll, just, we'll work together to pull this thing up, right? And so he starts it, and he reaches down, and it's clean, and he grabs it, and he pulls it up, and it's covered with crap, right? And, and I'm, I'm like, and he's standing there holding this thing, like, this is heavy, and, uh, and, and I'm like, I'm not grabbing that. He goes, get in there! I was like what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He's like, grab the pipe, and uh, I'm like, I'm not grabbing the pipe. He goes, Come on, be a man, get in there. So, you know, I, I did what he told me to do. He, he pulled, and I just grabbed it. My hands are covered, right? We just yank this thing up, and all this crap's coming out with it. And I since have watched plumbers work, and it's just they just get right in there. You know, that's like the that's like the the slogan of the day, and. Uh, I can remember getting done, you know, pulling this thing out, and, and, uh, and, and uh, he goes, go wash your hands. And I was like, all right. So I went and washed my hands. And my hands still smelled. All right? And so I went back, and I washed it again, I washed it again, and I still smelled. And for, the, for, for days, I could have sworn that I smelled this, like the, the, this, this thing, uh, you know, this stench uh, on my hands. And no matter how much I washed, I couldn't get it off. And after a while, I guess, like, my skin cells died and, and flaked off and flew away. And at some point, it stopped freaking me out. But when I think about, like, the way that it sticks, you know, and, and not even, not even necessarily, and this is key, not even necessarily, like, like the junk itself, but the idea of the junk, like, the idea of the mess. Even if I know that I've been cleansed, like, the memory of what happened was so ugly that it continues to stay with me. To the point that everywhere I go, and especially if I have different experiences, like I can still smell that. You know, I, can, I can still, I can still have that experience. I can still step into that. You know, so the grinder pump in our house broke uh, last uh, last summer, so I had the plumber come to fix the grinder pump, and I was there when he undid the, the nuts and the bolts and pulled the top off. And you know what the smell was that came out of the grinder pump? Same smell. And you know where I went back to, I couldn't have not gone back to, was the septic tank. And here again is this, like, stench. Here again is this smell, right, that I've been free of for, I don't know, 30 years. But where does my mind immediately go back to? It goes back to the fact that at some point I was covered in crap. And the stink, it, it hangs on. And no matter how much I wash, I can't get it all. Like, it just stays with me. And after a while, I get used to it and it goes away. Have you ever done that? Like, did you ever go camping for like a week or two and just not bathe? And you just get used to yourself. Like, you just start to stink. But you, nobody else knows. Like, everybody else you're with stinks until you get around someone who doesn't stink. And then they're like, whoa, like, you stink. And you're like, what do you mean? I thought everything was fine. No, everything is not fine. We get, we get used to these things and, and our stench follows us and it stays with us. and Even when we're cleansed from it, it we, we can feel like it's there. We can experience that it's there. And no matter how much we cleanse and no matter how much we wash, that no amount of washing can take those things off. Apply this analogy spiritually. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Because when we begin to think about the ways that sin affects us and how it covers us and how sticky shame can be, and how even when you know that like it's been washed and that it's been cleansed, like the memory of the hurt or the memory of the broken relationship, the memory of the pain, the memory of the shame, the smell of those things, it can stay with you. It can stay with you for a long time. It can stay with you for your whole life. So in this story, uh, again, I just read this like a drama. And so I went back through um, the Gospels and I sort of wrote out like a play, the dialogue from all four Gospels. So just listen to this. Let's listen to all four evangelists speak this story to us. And we're going to focus on John. Matthew 27, 1 to 26. Jesus is delivered to Pilate. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Jesus says nothing. Barabbas is summoned. Pilate, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or this Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate's wife interjects. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate ignores his wife. Which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? Barabbas. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? In Pilate's opinion, he sees a riot beginning as the people call for crucifixion. Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. The people say his blood can be on us and on our children. Where did the blood guilt reside if the cleansing didn't happen? In Deuteronomy 21. In the midst of the people. Mark 15. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. Chief priests freak out. Pilate, have you no answer to make, he says to Jesus? See how many charges they bring against you? Jesus says nothing. Pilate says to the people, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? No, release for us, Barabbas. Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? Crucify him. Pilate to himself. I have to satisfy this crowd. I am terrified they are getting out of hand. Pilate releases Barabbas and delivers Jesus to be crucified. Luke 23, the Jewish council. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, you have said so. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. The Jewish council says he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Wait a second, Pilate says, he's a Galilean? Yeah, oh, well then send him to Herod. Herod sends him back. Interesting point. Luke says that from that day forward, Herod and Pilate become good friends. Pilate calls everyone together, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Pilate announces, you brought me this man who, one, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by this man. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. The crowd says, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Pilate, I desire to release him. He has done nothing wrong. The crowd says, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish And release him. The crowd gets more uh, demanding for crucifixion. Pilate, in fear, grants their request. John 18. Pilate, what accusation do you bring against this man? The Jewish council. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Like, trust us. (laughs) Pilate, take him away yourselves and judge him according to your own laws. The council says, We can't put anyone to death. Pilate understands and calls Jesus into his office. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So you are a king. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. You know what you call that in politics? Pivoting. All right? you take the argument you're given and you shift it to make it about what you think is the real argument. Jesus goes from politics, where? To truth. I've come for this purpose, to bear witness of the truth. Who well, where I'm at? Oh, yeah. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Jesus says. Pilate says, and this is where you got to like, I wish we'd been there to see. How does he ask this question? Pilate says, what, what is truth? Or, what is truth? Pilate to the crowd, look, I find no guilt in him. You have a custom every year that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? The crowd says, not this man, but Barabbas. Pilate's stuck. And so he thinks to himself, how could I get out of this situation? He then pulls back from the crowd and orders that Jesus be flogged and beaten. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that's a good representation of what this would have been like. After that happens, he's barely recognizable as a human, as a person, as a man. Pilate brings Jesus out and shows Jesus to the crowd. And he says to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And out Jesus comes. And Pilate says, behold the man. And the crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, take him for yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Then the Jewish council says, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Dun, dun, dun. Pilate hears this and begins to get even more afraid. Pilate takes Jesus into his office again. And Pilate says, where are you from? And Jesus says nothing. Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus says, you would have no authority at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate becomes even more convinced in his heart that Jesus is innocent and seeks to release him. The Jewish leaders say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate decides to make this stick as easily as he can. Right? And so in Roman culture, there's this seat. It's a big curved seat. and sits about this high off the ground, just like a normal chair. It's called the bema seat. It's a judgment seat. It's a seat where a judge sits, or in this case, where Pilate would sit when he's giving a, a, uh, a decision. It's to make things as official as official can be. Pilate pulls out the Bema seat, sets it in front of the people and sits on it. And he says to the people and points at Jesus, behold your king. The crowd cries, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate from his seat says, should I crucify your king? The crowd says, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate becomes afraid. The riot is beginning. And he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Here is this penultimate contest as the representative of God's kingdom meets the representative of Rome. And here these two come together, this clash of warriors, right? This clash of leaders, this clash of kingdoms, this clash of governmental rulers. And here is Pilate and here is Jesus. And what do two leaders like this talk about when they get together? Things like authority and power decisions and truth, If Pilate was getting together with any other like leader of a country or of a kingdom, these are the same kind of conversations they'd be having, except he's never had a conversation like this before. He's never had someone look at him and not need to defend himself, right? He's never had someone dare to challenge, not just authority, but the source of authority. Like you don't do that to a Roman governor. Rome is Rome, and if you don't like it, then you can die. Otherwise, submit. Jesus stands before him and says, you don't understand who you are dealing with. You don't understand what it is that you've gotten yourself into. And Pilate makes a decision. Now, here's the thing. You can tell a good leader because a good leader will stand by his convictions or her convictions, a good leader will know what it is that needs to be done in a certain situation and not budge from what that thing is. Pilate is afraid. Right? Pilate is afraid. He is fearful. What we see in Jesus is courage courage to stand on what God has said and to not move from the spot that he has been given. Like this decision was made, this decision was made in the garden. But Pilate wasn't in the garden. Pilate had an actual experience with someone, did an, the actual job of judging, did actually listen to what was going on, had a deep conviction. This person is innocent. They, he, this person does not deserve to die. And the crowds swayed his opinion. The crowds tossed him back. And forth. And time and time again he says, This isn't right, this isn't right. Time and time again, he offers, right? He offers this other strange thing. Like we had this custom. Which do you want? The deep murderer, the really bad guy, or do you want Jesus? Like, let's not forget what Jesus has has been doing, right? Healing people, loving people, helping the sick, helping the poor. What's Barabbas done? Murdered people stolen stuff, and the crowd calls for Barabbas. Quick aside here, rabbit trail, for 30 seconds. The word Barabbas, if you take it apart, bar means son of, Abba means father. And so Barabbas is the release of the son of the father. Interesting. Interesting that even Barabbas' humanity and image-bearing is honored in the very fact that he's named this son of father. Jesus is uh, innocent and is, through a fearful leader, sentenced to death. Now, think about Pilate in this situation. Pilate knows what is right. Pilate doesn't do what is right. And it causes an innocent man to die. How would you feel? How would you feel? Seriously, you yourself would feel guilty, right? How else? Like, can you imagine watching somebody get beaten the way Jesus did in your own mind, being convinced that he was innocent and then seeing him after that beating and being like, and being okay with yourself? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine like knowing what it is that Jesus has been doing for all of these years? And of knowing that he's innocent and hasn't done anything wrong and still releasing him to experience the worst death that the world has, has thought up to this point. Like, Pilate knows exactly what's going on. And within himself, he feels the guilt. He feels the shame. And he tries to wash it. And the gospel, according to Pontius Pilate, is this. Keep washing yourself. Keep washing yourself because that stench is always with you when you make a decision like that. There's a legend in the Desert Fathers that says that Pontius Pilate is condemned to the Sinai wilderness where he walks around all day looking for water to wash his hands and is not able to find any. And the stench is there, like the blood is there. And it doesn't matter how much he washed. doesn't matter how much he washed that day. It's just, it's always there. It wears more water because here is the guilt of this man. Here is this one that I can't, that I can't wash off. Here is this innocent blood. What will I do? His own wife tried to stop him. His own wife said, don't have, just, just, just dismiss yourself from the situation. And Pilate releases Jesus to be crucified. However, this is interesting. Look at your text in verse 19. The end of verse 18. I'm sorry, the end of verse 16 says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So three different inscriptions that say this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so here is this man, Pilate, who within himself is deeply conflicted over what it is that he has done and who feels the guilt, who feels the guilt of the sin that he has committed against the very son of God. And wants with everything in him to wash this off, to wash this stench off, to wash this dirt off. And he tries to do so symbolically, but it just doesn't work. It's just not there. And on some level of strange confession, he makes this sign and puts it up on the cross, like sort of half getting there, but half not, of saying, this is the king of the Jews. Like on some way, I'm going to find some way to not get pushed by these leaders anymore. This crowd isn't going to define what this situation is. Understand this, I might have called for the death of this man, but the death of this man is the death of the king of the Jews. Not of a crazy man who ran around saying, I think I'm the king of the Jews, but there's actually some point of confession that is here as Pilate continues to try and wash this off, wash this guilt off, having known that he was the one who put an innocent man to death. All that to bring us to this point. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. One second, let me make sure I said everything else, to. The gospel according to Pilate is one of power without authority, fear of the crowd, rejection of truth, and continual self-cleansing. All of this was empowered by Pilate's functional savior. Like the place that he was most safe was the fact that he represented Rome. But he's looking in the face of the true savior. And the gospel according to Jesus is one of full authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth a gospel of love and forgiveness of enemies. It's truth in the face of power and cleansing, not by self-washing, but cleansing by the blood of Christ. True salvation is Jesus and his kingdom. The gospel, according to Pilate, says, keep washing yourself. You're never going to get rid of the stench. The gospel, according to Jesus, says, come and be fully cleansed. Come and be free. Here's a gospel that I heard many, many times. Perhaps you've heard this too. This gospel says that you're a sinner, right? Like you're a sinner and sin is really bad. Sin stinks. And you're covered in it. Like all of you. You didn't just grab the septic tank like pump handle. You actually just jumped in the septic tank. You went in there and swam around for a while, and you loved it. You loved that septic tank, and you loved the way you stank, right? And, and, and that's what sin does. But the problem with that is that if you choose that, then that means that you've got to go to hell. And the fact that you got to go to hell, like, do you want to go to hell? Does anyone in here want to burn forever? No, I don't want to burn forever. Good. You don't have to. Here's the thing is you're a nasty, rotten sinner who jumped in the septic tank and who deserves hell. But God is love. And because God is love, that means that he sacrificed Jesus to die for you. And so because Jesus died for you, you don't have to go to hell anymore. This gospel continues and both implies and says this though. It shouldn't have had to be that way if you didn't stink so bad. If you just hadn't been so filthy, if you just hadn't been so wretched, then this thing didn't need to happen. And so God sacrificed his son, but God now expects something from you. So you'd better measure up because look at what God sacrificed for you. God sacrificed his own son. Now, he was glad to. God loves you. But the rest of your life really should be one big thank you letter to God. The rest of your life should be you looking at each and every day, each and every thought, each and every action going, does this please? Does this not please? If it does not please, what do you do? You go back and you wash, right? You go back and you wash. And then you get back out there, and what do you do out there? You just work harder. You work harder. And you go out there, and all that stench and everything, and you stay clean, no matter what. Now go out there into the sin, but you stay clean. No stench is allowed to get on you. If stench does get on you, then just go back and wash, and keep washing, and keep washing. Have your devotions in the morning and wash. Go to church on Sunday morning, get washed. All right? Go to small group, wash. All right? Whatever you do, make sure you keep washing because you're still a sinner at your core, right? That's still who you are. You still stink. Oh, you look good, but you know, when you put your hand up to your nose like this, it stinks. You stink. But it's okay, because God is love. God loves you. However, he's not putting up with any stench. So to the degree that you stink is to the degree that you need to self-wash, And get that junk off of you. And if you don't know how, well, go to a conference or read a book. You know, there's stuff out there. But at all costs, stop stinking. God doesn't like stink. God doesn't like dirt. And God's not pleased with you when you're either one of those things. That's okay. Because God is love. Doesn't this sound like a loving God? God is love. right? And he loves you and he's taking care of you but you got to stay clean. There's a whole lot of self in that. <laughs> Pilate couldn't wash the blood guilt off. The children of Israel, did you see what they said? Let his blood be on us and then they condemn their kids too and on our children. Like just bring that into here. Like what do you do with that level of guilt? Have you and I experienced and made that level of guilt in our lives? Absolutely. 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 Can we cleanse ourselves from that guilt? No. No. And this gospel says that there's this reluctant God up in heaven who's sort of like, dang it, I just wish you didn't stink so bad. But I do love you, so here's my son. He'll die for you. And now stay clean, please. Like, do you see the sacrifice? Do you see what I've done? That's not God. That's a gospel according to Pilate. Keep washing. Keep washing. Get that blood off. Work harder. The God that we know and see is a God who's truly our full Passover lamb. He's the one who sends his only begotten son, his oldest son, to die the death, to take the plague upon himself. And what we receive from him and through his blood is true, full Eternal cleansing. Like, you're clean. You're clean. It doesn't feel like that. (laughs) I feel shame. I feel guilt. Yeah, I I understand. I get that. I've been there. But that's not you. That's not you. Not in Christ. Not in Jesus. All the things in your life that want to tell you that you stink all the things in your life that want to tell you that you're just simply covered in crap, all the experiences that you've had, the situations that you created for yourself, the situations that were created uh, by others for you, the abuse that you've come from, the wounds that you've committed toward others, all of the things that you think about about yourself that you would never tell anybody else, those things are places and positions that you have been cleansed from through Jesus. It's through his blood. No amount of self-washing can take care of that. You can't go to enough therapy to be washed. Right? We, can't receive, we, can't, we can't receive enough teaching or we can't go to enough conferences or read enough books to get it. The fact that God in his love, the fact that he in his grace comes to us and steps toward us, and not just that, but that he actually becomes a human and joins the stench-filled crowd and takes upon himself all of that, all of that dirt, all of those wounds, all of that nastiness, all of the things that we think we have to work harder to be, cleaned up, to be clean of, those are the things that he takes on himself. And he does so. He does so not because love is the posture that he's forced into. He does so because love is the posture that he chooses. And in the place of greatest offense, we experience the greatest release, and the greatest freedom, and true cleansing. True cleansing. What he brings us is not just, you know, is is, is not just, uh, it's not just eternal life. It's abundant life. It's fullness. It's not a partiality. It's all that he is. All of his grace, all of his love, all of his truth. And he says, and says, come, let me wash. Come, let me take the stench. Come, let me clean you, let me cleanse you. And we go back out and we get dirty and we come again to the blood of Christ for cleansing. Thank you, Lord, for the cleansing that you give us through the death of your son. We Thank you for your heart that is toward us. Your heart that is for us. Your heart that went willfully choosing love to the cross and giving us that which we cannot have ourselves. Cleansing. We stand as people who are free, truly free. You, our lamb, has washed us, and we bless you, and we thank you. And we declare, God, that we don't want to be a people who walk around trying to self-cleanse because the futility of that um, leads us to nowhere but frustration and distance. So rather, God, thank you for your inviting arms that bring us in and that that hold us close and that wash us clean.
1: And as we leave here today, God,
0: I pray that we would all leave with a deep awareness that you love us and that you cleanse us. Thank you for the blood of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.